So as you grab out your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter. We're going to chapter 2, continuing our series, this wonderful letter written by the Apostle Peter. And before we launch into the message this morning, let me just pray. Let me just pray. Not because we have to, because we get to. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your matchless love. We thank you for your limitless grace. We thank you for your goodness and your mercies. They're new each and every morning. Lord, you are the God who has always provided for your people. You will always continue to provide for us, your people. So would you give us today our daily bread? Lord, we come not just to hear a sermon, we come to partake. We come to be transformed. We come to see you and to know you, to love you more, to allow you to do what you need to do in our hearts and our lives. Make us more like you, we pray, Jesus, for the glory of your name. May you always receive the glory, the honor, the praise, the worship, the adoration, the exaltation, for you are the one who is always and will always be worthy of all that we are. We honor you, Lord Jesus. Just come and speak to our hearts. Give us listening ears this morning, and we hear your voice clearly. Just still the distractions that would keep us from that which you desire to speak to us this morning, I pray in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you've come in late, we're headed to 1 Peter. We're going to chapter 2, continuing this series. Peter, of course, writing about true grace. And in many ways, for those who've been around the last few weeks, you would have seen that Peter was building up this incredible picture. He's got this burden, as he says himself, as he writes his letter, to exhort and declare true grace. But you see, it wasn't just to declare it. It was also a second part of his mission statement, which was that we would be established in it, that we would stand firm in the reality of this grace that he has proclaimed. So we're going to see a transition here from, in many ways, what was the pinnacle, the high point. We read the beginning of chapter 2, talking about being built up into this building, this people kingdom of priests that would proclaim, that would worship, that would offer acceptable sacrifices, the high call of worship, and this mission to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We were a people without mercy, and yet he has given to us mercy. Amen. Which brings us to verse 11. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself, because this is fascinating. This is what Peter says in verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, Beloved, and really the uh, old King James translates this best. This is an incredible word of tenderness. He says, Dearly beloved, people whom I am passionate about. He has great affection to these people that he's writing to. And yet the next statement is, I urge you. And really this is stronger than urging the the Possibly the best translation would be to summon, to call to attention. So you can see there's great affection, but there's great intent. Dearly beloved, I summon you. I'm shaking you. I'm waking you up. 
He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We'll continue in a moment. Let's just pause there. Just think about what we just read. We have gone from this high point, this call to worship the Lord, to all of a sudden we're in the middle of a war. You think, how did that happen? There was no transition there, was there? There's no, you read that and think, did he miss the segue? Did he miss the connecting thought? How did we go from this high call to behold the glory of God to the midst of a battle? These passions waging war against us. How do we go from the proclamation to find ourselves in the midst of problems? And you see, there's something important for us to recognize here. Because we've looked at this high call, the proclamation of who he is. We've looked at the call. But what's also important to note is the context. It's the call and the context. We've looked at the purpose. But here Peter is trying to make sure we're aware of the right perspective. Because so often we have this tendency to make worship about a moment. Our moments are great. We make worship about these times that we gather together on a Sunday morning. We sing songs. We celebrate God. We fellowship. And then Monday morning we get up and we go to work with that boss that really irritates you. With those co-workers who get on your nerves. And sometimes, speaking for myself here, worship is the furthest thought from our minds. So there's a call to worship, but there is a context that worship is not found in the absence of circumstances, in the absence of war, but in the midst of, the midst of the battle. I remember there's a story that uh, many of you would know of Jen Johnson. She's a worship leader and writes a lot of songs and music. And she has a, a rather famous father-in-law, and she said, shares this story in the context of worship. She, she leads worship at her church, and she said there was this one day where everything went wrong. Anyone have those days? Just one of those frustrating days. She got three kids. The kids were all over the place. It was just a horrible space to be in. And she's in the car, having had one of those days, heading to church Sunday night, getting ready for worship. And she said, I said this out loud to myself with my father-in-law sitting in the back. She said, I said, oh, this is, this is not good. I've just got to take the, you know, take the uh, mummy hat off, take the trouble hat off, put the worship hat on, get in that space. And we all know what she's trying to say there, you know, get ready, I'm heading to worship, I've got to get in the zone. And she said, in that moment, the father-in-law looks at her as probably only he can do. And he said, Jen, the problem is that the worship hat ever came off. That hurts a little, doesn't it? The problem is that the worship hat ever came off. I know myself, there's something that I love to do in the mornings is uh, spend a little time with the Lord. I make myself a, a nice cup of coffee and I sit there. I love to just be by myself, get up early before the kids and the chaos arises and just settle myself for the day. And so often I'm there having a lovely moment with the Lord and I'm sure no one else's kids are like this, but sometimes my kids get out of bed and they've had a good night's sleep and they're just angels. You know, and you just nudge each other, my wife and I, and think, aren't we just doing a wonderful job? <laughs> and then other mornings, it's like from the word go, no one said anything to anyone, and it's their mission to disturb my peace. 
And so I hear this, you sort of hear the troubles brewing, and I'm in my holy chair, just enjoying my time with the Lord. And sometimes I kind of think, well, I should be there sorting it out, but how long can I let this go? How long can I just let it brew until World War III is about to erupt in my living room? Just enjoy, you turn the music up just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer, and then into whatever it is that presents itself. See, that's not the right picture of worship, is it? Worship's not this call to the mountaintop in the absence of any circumstance. He calls us, as he called Moses, up to the mountain to encounter his glory so that we can live in the mission. To experience his glory so that we can live out the ordinary. This is not a grace and this is not a call that is somehow removed from the stuff that goes on all around us. That's why this is such an important segue. It's not just the call to worship him, to honor him, to proclaim the kingdom, but it is the context. We're building an altar of praise. We're living for the glory of God. And here's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen in the midst of a battle. So if you're taking notes, that's the first reality. There's three, just three. Number one, there is a battle. Have you noticed there's a battle? Here's an interesting statistic just to get you thinking about the reality of the war that's around us. And I apologize, this is in the context of the US. I looked for some Australian statistics, couldn't find any, maybe they don't exist. How many bombs do you think that the United States dropped in combat during the year 2016? This was recently published and released by the US military. One year, one calendar year, a nation that's at peace. Gary, you're not allowed to answer. Where is he? Somewhere. Just one, the big one. How many? Anyone got a number? 100,000? Not far off. 26,000 bombs were dropped in combat, in combat, during the year 2016. Now, I point that out for this reason. Most people would be oblivious. The United States is at peace. We're a nation at peace. And yet there is bombs going off, 26,000 of them in a calendar year. And if we are unaware of the physical, the natural battles around us, how much more unaware are we at times of the spiritual battles? See, Paul talks about this. Peter talks about this. The scriptures proclaim that the real battle is not actually the physical world that's going on. There's a battle in the heavenlies. There is a spiritual battle. There is a war, as Peter puts it, for the passions of your soul. There's a war for worship. The best way to lose a war is to be ignorant or to deny that it even exists. And see, this is why we need perspective. Perspective is important. We've got to have this perspective. I had a moment last week where I was heading to meet up with my dad for coffee. This is actually a week before last. And we normally go down to the local coffee shop. We arrive there, 7.30 in the morning. I'm ready for a cup of coffee. You all right? You with me? And then all of a sudden, as we arrive at the front door of the cafe, we find out that it's closed. I, you're feeling my pain. Feeling my pain, I know. They had no power, and not only was it closed, they said, I'm sorry, we'll be closed for at least a day. Now, people talk at times about you know, this concept of hangry. We know that. We're so hungry that you're a little bit angry. I think we need a new phrase, which is kangry. You know, so in need of caffeine... <laughs> They were a bit cross. I experienced that that morning. There was a lot of people who were very cross about not getting their morning coffee. 
But my father and I, we said, it's okay, we'll find another coffee shop. So we headed off. We said, there's, there's some, I know where I'm heading. No worries, you know where you're going. Great, we'll head to Arendelle. And so a few moments later, I grabbed my phone. I said, Dad, where are you? He said, I'm at the coffee shop. I said, no, you're not. I'm at the coffee shop. He said, no, you're not. I'm at the coffee shop. <laughs> Turns out there's a lot of coffee shops around. And we had the same desire to go to the coffee shop, but we had a completely different place and a, a path that had taken us there. Another example, perhaps a better one, is for holidays, we love to go to this place. It's just south of the Gold Coast, Burley Heads. There's plenty of different things to do. And all of my kids love different things. So if I say to them, let's go outside, we're going to go outside, we're going to get some fresh air, inevitably I'll get one kid to come and you know, one, one of them loves surfing, so she'll come with a surfboard in hand, the wetsuit on, the towel. She's ready to go, ready to go for a surf. Another child will rock up with a scooter. She's ready to go on the path, loves the parks. Someone else will rock up with the, the tennis racket. My wife, of course, will rock up with a shopping bag and a purse and probably my credit card. Is it, she here? No? I love you, sweetheart. Point is, we're all going outside, but it's, it's not just the purpose. It's the perspective that helps us to refine what that purpose looks like in the reality of our everyday lives. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying it's a wake-up call. Dearly beloved, there is a battle. There's a war. And most of you don't even realize that it exists. But you need to understand that there's a war and you need to understand how to stand against it. Now, this word here, he talks about the passions of the flesh. And probably most of us instantly are thinking of passions of the flesh, fleshly passions. He's talking about sexual sin, that sort of stuff. And yes, he is. But I would say, first of all, we'll come back to that into a moment. This is a much broader term. He's talking about anything that would distract us, any sort of passion, any sort of desire from this high call of worshipping God. Like coffee, perhaps? Yes? Let's move on very quickly. Any sort of addiction. I don't know if caffeine is included, but anything that would distract us. He's saying there is a war going on. It's not going to be easy, but you need to stand against it. And I just felt like this morning, we haven't done this in a little while, but I thought it might be good for us to just have a little bit of a heart-to-heart, just a pastoral moment. I hope that's okay. I hope that's okay. Bear with me. But I uh, was looking at a website this week, and it's a website, a ministry by this guy called Dr. Ted Roberts. Anyone heard of Dr. Ted Roberts? Pure Desire is his website. He's this guy, and I came across him a few years ago, and he has a ministry dedicated particularly to seeing Christian men and women, particularly men but also women, walk in freedom. So his story, fantastic testimony. Go to the website and check it out. But he was a uh, a Marine. He was a fighter pilot during the Vietnam War, went on many different missions. He then came back from the war, had a lot of stuff to deal with. The Lord set him free, went into ministry for, 10 year, uh, for 20 years, pastored a church. And now for the last decade or so, he has purely run this ministry that wants to lead particularly Christian people into freedom. He does a lot of research. He's now a doctor, as I said, re- social research. And every time I read his statistics, it really hits me where it hurts. These are some of his statistics. He said this, Every study they've done, and particularly they look at this area of sexual sin, but as well as other addictive behaviors and areas, he said in every category and every study we've done, 
whether it's the use of pornography, whether it's premarital sex, sleeping around outside marriage, before marriage, whether it's addiction, people within the church are as bad or in some cases worse than people outside the church. In every single case. What a sad state of affairs. Now there's good news. But there's the reality that's got to hurt us a little bit to push us towards really seeking and pursuing freedom. See, we don't realize that sin leaves us compromised. Sin compromises our witness. What good is it? We've talked about this high call to worship. But what good is it if we hear this call and we come, we lift holy hands up to worship God. And then from Monday to Friday, we're fooling around in sin. We're living in sin. We're viewing pornography. We're sleeping around. What, what good is our worship? Our worship is compromised. It's a word for it. It's called hypocrisy. We come to worship, and then Monday to Friday, we do whatever we want. He makes this statement. I love Dr. Ted. He doesn't mess around, and I don't necessarily want you to agree with this statement. In fact, I don't necessarily want you to agree with anything I say. I'd always hope that you'd take it on board and you'd wrestle with it. But this is his statement, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but I think it's, there's a reality to it that's important. He said, I believe, this is a quote from him, Dr. Ted Roberts, I believe the Lord would have to repent if he ever sent revival to the church in its present condition. Ooh. Ooh. See, his point is this, and he goes on to say, I believe that revival is what we need. But if we're bold enough to pray for God to do something in our city and our nation, we've first of all got to be bold enough for God to do something in our hearts and our midst, to deal with the stuff, to deal with this sin that is compromising the call of God that he is calling us to. See, it is a disengaged society. We all want the victory. We want the victory, but we don't have to fight a battle. We want the rewards. We want the spoils of war without ever paying a price. We want to be overcomers, but we never want to face anything that needs to be overcome. And this is the reality. We're talking, remember, about true grace. Peter has just built this picture of true grace. And this is what he's now saying. He's saying, I want you to grab this. It's so important. Grace, this incredible picture, you are a people of God, you are a kingdom of, you, you are all, this is the reality of who you are. That's not an excuse not to fight. We've done it all, therefore I can do anything I want. It's not an excuse not to fight. It is the power and all that we need to fight. Now you can get into the battle. Now you can stand against the tide of stuff that is all around us. You can worship in the midst of the war. You can stand up and live and make a difference. See, Peter is saying if you want to be effective in your worship and your mission, you've got to see the battle. You've got to get a little backbone. You've got to get your game face on, and we've got to stand and fight. We've got to stop being a people with a foot in each camp. If we want to see revival, we've got to be willing to allow God to deal with our hearts. Deal with the stuff that is within us. See, so often... Often see quotes like this, you know, the greatest threat to the church is postmodernism. Certainly it's a threat, or some might say, well, the greatest threat to the church is materialism, it's, it's apathy, it's just the lust of the eyes and the love of money. Some even often say, well, the greatest threat to the church is Islam, it's other religions. 
Now, there's some truth in all of those sayings, but I would suggest this. Without any shadow of a doubt, the greatest threat to the church is us. It's you and me. It's a people who are not willing to stand up and fight for the glory of God. There's a call to worship. There's a call to proclaim his name. But there's a context. There's a battle. Come on. We're going to fight this thing. And it starts here. We want to see the glory of God come. And you see, this is not a, this is not a moment of condemnation. It also is a moment of mercy. This is an invitation to freedom. I had a, a moment a couple of months ago. I'd been outside working on our farm, our property. I was chopping up. I think this is how it happened. Chopping up, uh, angle grinding some steel poles. And I hurt my hand. I came inside. I didn't know what I'd done, but I knew it was sore. I said to my wife, my hand's really sore. But being the bloke, I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. No issue. And then pretty soon, the hand started to swell up a little bit, started to fester. I could see under the skin there was this pus and this sore. Bear with me. Not too graphic. So I'm like, oh, well, there's a bit of pus there. Pus never killed anyone. I'll just sort of drain it out and hope for the best. Patched it up and went on. But over a series of weeks, my hand just got sorer and sorer and sorer. And it got to a point where I was like, this is ridiculous. I can't deny this anymore. I've got to deal with this issue. So I grabbed my wife. It's a bit hard to do it one-handed. I said, shine the light on here. We've got to find out what's going on with my hand. And in the midst of all this pus and disgustingness, she was poking and prodding around with the tweezers. And all of a sudden, she pulled out this long bit of metal. Now, the story's growing. I think it was at least 10, 20... 30 centimetres long. It was as big as my arm. She couldn't believe it. But her eyes, genuinely, her eyes lit up. She's like, wow, how did, look at that, this huge thing. But the moment after that was gone, instantly I'm like, oh, I've forgotten what a normal, healthy hand felt like. You see, it is the mercy of God that points out this stuff so that we can deal with it, so that he can come and shine his light and say, let's get it out so we can be healthy. There should be statistics that are so far different that the world stands up and notices. Man, I don't know what is going on in that church, but they live differently than the people who live in the world. There's a passion and there's a purity. This is God's mercy. The church should be the most open, engaged, real, genuine place on the planet. Because there's not one of us here who's encountered the Lord Jesus that doesn't know that we are sinners. Saved by his grace. That we are broken people living on a broken planet and we desperately need his forgiveness and his mercy. He's cleansed us. He's made us whole. He's invited us to live in freedom. And our desire is to just get alongside others and encourage them. Let's get free. This is his mercy. It's not condemnation. It's an invitation. An invitation to stand up and fight in the midst of the passions that war against our soul. See, I want to say some possibly hard but inviting truths. If you're one of the three quarters of men who modern statistics, and they're getting worse, regularly view pornography, you are in the right place because there is freedom in Jesus. But it's only going to happen when we stop denying these issues. We stop covering them up. We stop just shoving them down. When we get real with one another, when we say, that's me, 
and I want to get free. I want to remove this festering wound and I want to be healthy and whole again. If you're one of the people, and I don't know what statistics are, that's addicted to alcohol or drugs or any other substance, you know, you're in the right place. We are people here. This is a safe place. We've encountered the grace of Jesus. And we just want to see you encounter that same grace. We want to see you get free. I've been in pastoral ministry for more than 10 years. I dare you to come and tell me something that I've not heard before. It doesn't concern me, and it shouldn't concern any of us. I get excited when someone comes and says, man, I'm addicted to drugs. I'm addicted to pornography. I've had a number this year already. I want to get free. I'm not like, oh, you filthy... I'm like, this is fantastic. Praise God, because this is the beginning of freedom, of seeing the Lord Jesus set you free. Talked about big issues. What about little ones? What about bitterness? Unforgiveness? What about a secret anger addiction? See, I would say this. We have dabbled around long enough. It is time that the church heard the wake-up call. It's time to stand up and fight. It is. It is time to deal with these things. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It's going to be a quick fix. Peter puts it this way. He says, wake up. There is a war. But I am saying it's the way that we fulfill this call to truly worship God, to truly see his name glorified and exalted. Let's move on. There's a second reality, and we could camp there. I know we've only got five minutes left. I'll make it quick. But this personal commitment to stand or to fight, it leads to a public witness. Let's go back to 1 Peter. He said, abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Then verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be emperors, supreme, governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise to those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. So what we're saying. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And just in case you thought that that didn't apply to that particularly difficult person that bugs you in your life, verse 17, honor who? Everybody. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You could say honor the government. Now, we could delve into those in detail, but I would simply make this point. What is it that Peter's trying to say? He's saying this personal commitment leads to a public witness, leads to a passion to live with character. That's what he's saying. In every circumstance and situation, be it people who speak evil of you, be it the boss that annoys you, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, live with character. Quickly turn with me to the book of Titus. I want to read one more passage and then we'll bring this to a close. Titus follows along Timothy. He, of course, was a spiritual son of the Apostle Paul, Paul who went on these missionary journeys. And probably on Paul's third journey, he traveled through a particular area. After he traveled through, he left Titus to establish the church. That was his mission. Go and plant churches. 
But what's fascinating here, I remember it was about 10 years ago, I read this particular passage of Scripture, and I was so struck by it. In verse 5, Paul says, This is why I've left you behind, that you may put what remained in order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And here is his qualification for pastors. Just think about this. If you were going to plant a church, what would you look for? What would you look for? Because most of us, and if I'm honest, I'd be like, right, new church, here we go, that's what we need. We want to make an impact on the community. We need a good worship team. Because none of us can sing, so let's find someone who can sing. Let's find someone who can preach. Let's find good lighting system, good sound system. Let's find... We, we would be looking for giftings, yeah? Looking for gifted people. This is what Paul says to Titus. He says, go and establish churches and find pastors. And here's the criteria in verse 6. If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach, must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He continues on. Have you noticed something? There's not one mention of gifting in there, is it? It's character. Find people of character. What if they can't sing? Well, I don't know. Find people of character. And see, I read this a short time after I'd gone along to, and I don't mean to speak down about this, but I went along to, they called it a church growth seminar. It was particularly focused on youth ministry, but I was new to ministry. I thought, it sounds fantastic. It's just what I need to hear. And this guy spoke about his top 10. His top 10 ways to grow a church. The top 10 ways to be influential in your city. I thought, fantastic. And look, honestly, he had a lot of good things to say. But they were all about, you've got to get the right leaders in place. You've got to find people with giftings. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And he got to the end of his list. And he said, this is my number one. So what I've discovered in all my years of ministry is the number one way that you grow a church, he said this, you put on big events. You hold big events. You get everybody involved. You do a big light show. You do a big performance. You just get you know, encouraging, inspiring speakers in there that are just going to really move an audience. And, and that's what he said. Now, as I said, there was a lot of good things in his talk, a lot of good principles, but they weren't necessarily godly principles. Here's the reality. This is the point out of all of that. Gifting will always draw a crowd. It will. You get gifted people in a room in any area, they will draw a crowd. But it's character that changes lives. And changed lives that impact a city. We're not here to put on a show. We're not here to entertain. We're here to live for the glory of God. We're to see his name exalted. We're here to see our city impacted for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's only going to come through a people who commit themselves to character. So in an age and an era, there's no shortage of people crying out, Lord, make us a success. Lord, give us influence. Give us money. Give us wealth. Do whatever you have to do, Lord, to make us famous for your glory. For your glory, Lord. For your glory. How many of us are really willing to pray, Lord, do whatever it takes to develop my character? Change me. Change me. So I not only get the call to worship, but I can live in the context with which my worship is truly given. We don't even have time to really develop this third aspect, but 
There's a theme that Peter has said all the way along here. See, really what we've talked about is defensive strategies, abstaining, remaining steadfast, living with character. But defense by itself is not enough to win this battle. We need an offensive strategy. Offensive is in forward, not as in offensive. With me? See, sometimes it is. That's true. And in the same way that the personal commitment leads to a public witness, this is only ever sustained by a passionate pursuit. This is our call. The best way to abstain, the best way to remain with character is to avail ourselves of all the means of grace that he has provided to seek him and to savor him. Peter, all the way through, he said things like this. Set your hope fully, chapter 1, verse 13. In chapter 2, he said, Long like newborn infants for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. You ever seen a newborn crying because it's hungry? What sort of passion does it exude as it cries? Like there's nothing else in the world and no one's going to stand between me and getting what I need. He just talked about you are a people who have been rescued and redeemed, that you'd proclaim the excellencies, you've tasted of the excellencies, the goodness. You live in his marvelous light. You've experienced all that he has made available. See, it's all about pursuing him with passion, savoring his excellencies, marveling in his light, tasting his goodness, feeding on his word, pursuing him in prayer, gathering together intentionally to allow his mind-renewing, heart-transforming, sin-conquering grace to flow with power and provision within our lives. There's the defense, but the offense is to seek to save a Jesus. Never stop pursuing him with passion, reminding and encouraging one another the glory of seeking him is so much greater than anything the world could offer anyway. So it's the personal commitment that leads us to this public witness that's fueled and that's sustained by this passionate pursuit of the lover of our souls. So I want to pray for us. Is there someone who can just come and play? Thanks. Thank you, Di. I want you to put your Bibles away. We're just going to give the Lord a bit of room as we conclude. We never want to just come and hear a sermon. We want to come and allow the Lord to speak to us. So, Lord, I thank you for your scriptures. And I thank you for this tender and intimate intent wake-up call from the Apostle Peter, saying, remember the high call of worship. Remember the call to proclaim the excellencies, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved, rescued, and redeemed. But remember that the call happens in the context of a war, of a battle. And Lord, would we be a people who are willing to stand and fight? Would we be a people 
who not only on paper but in reality there is something so significant and different about the way that we live our lives not only in response to sin but in response to struggles response to distractions in response to our priorities Lord, I thank you that there's something about holiness that not only is so pleasing in your sight, but it's irresistible to the world. Lord, with that aroma of holiness, fill your temple again. May we worship not only as we gather on a Sunday, but as we're surrounded by the passions warring against our souls. May we be a people who stand up to fight and see others brought into the freedom that you've paid for and that you've won for us. And Lord, I want to finish just by giving each and every one of us an invitation. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now, that you would shine your light. As David prayed, Lord, search my heart. Show me any wickedness, even a trace of sin. Lord, we know that we are broken people living on a broken planet. But may this be the time that we stop just covering things up and stuffing them down and letting them fester. Lord, may this be not condemnation, but an invitation. An invitation to truly deal with the issues of our heart. I pray that there might be at least one thing, maybe there's many things in the lives and hearts of your people here that you reveal well, condemnation is not from you but conviction is would you convict our hearts show us the stuff we need to deal with that we might be effective in what you've called us to and Lord where you do show us things give us the courage may this be a place of openness a place of sharing of bearing each other's burdens confessing our faults and our failures that we might walk together in freedom. I pray in Jesus' name.